Good evening, and thank you for joining us. I'm Ed Hand, your host for tonight's Unpublished TV panel discussion. Our topic tonight, the return to class for post-secondary students in COVID. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Our question this week is, if returning college and university students will be learning predominantly online, should tuition be reduced? At unpublished.vote, you will find our podcast on this issue, as well as articles, opinion pieces, and research on the various plans to return to class. So let's get started. And joining us this evening, Gillian Phillips is the past president of the Ontario Confederation of University Faculty Associations and currently associate professor at Nipissing University in North Bay. Ray Watt Dianandon is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. Nicole Brianis is the national deputy chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students. And Brenda Austin-Smith is the president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, as well as a professor at the University of Manitoba. And our question, the results come back, 68.8% said yes, tuition should be lowered. Just under 19% said no, and 12.5% unsure. Nicole, you must be encouraged that uh, two-thirds, at least two-thirds feel that way. Definitely. And, you know, financial situation has been extremely difficult for students even before the pandemic began. This is nothing new. Uh, there's simply more attention on it now about the struggles that students face and being able to pursue education. Uh, but when we talk about tuition, yes, it's important for uh, institutions to be looking at their budgets and seeing how they can reduce that, such as through ancillary fees in order to support students. But ultimately, this comes back to a larger systemic issue in that there's not enough public funding into post-secondary education. Uh, it's been decreasing throughout the years. Uh, and this is something that needs to be changed and needs to be addressed, uh, not only now during the pandemic, but afterwards as well, moving forward and supporting students throughout post-secondary education. So this isn't just about the, the, the tuition fees being too high. This is just, you, you, you want to see a complete change to the whole education system, would you not? Definitely. And when we look at international students, too, who are currently used to be uh, to foot the bill for education, because there is not that public investment from post-secondary, uh, sorry, from uh, the government into post-secondary institutions. Uh, these are students now when we're moving online are still paying tens of thousands of dollars for the same education that domestic students are facing. Uh, however, they're doing that from a computer, some in their own countries even, or being forced to pay for rent uh, and for fees uh, to stay on residences here without receiving the same report uh, supports and without having the same access uh, to the education that they should have uh, and should not be paying even more for. Gillian, what communication was there between the, uh, the, the Confederation of the Province in, in reopening? Um, in terms of Okufa, yeah. I, I'll, I'll say the the, pro, the province has been um, very uh, very reluctant to really offer any guidance or advice. Um, you know what they have as the support has been very minimal, um, and they've been very active on the public education front, but universities really haven't had. Uh, much engagement at all from from the province, and I think you know um, I, just to to echo some of the things Nicole was saying that uh, you know one of the things that we're really seeing here is the results of years of underfunding of the Ontario post secondary system, where I mean in Ontario our tuition rates are much much too high, uh, and students are bearing the the 
the a, a much too high cost of that of that of of supporting that system, um, and that's also coupled with uh, you know when the Ford government came into uh, into power, they gutted the some of the reforms that the Liberal government had made to OSAP, which had made grants tuition grants quite widely available to students in low and middle income. Um, brackets and and made that tuition more affordable and that's that's been really really scaled back and so students are on the hook and they're looking at just punishing debt loads you know and mm-hmm. I think and I think all faculty are really sympathetic with that you know you're facing no education or a crushing debt when you when you when you graduate and so for all of those reasons I think it's really important that um, that we consider the that reducing tuition however, I will also say, and and I, I think this is in Nicole's uh, thinking as well, um, that we can't just cut tuition. Universities can't simply cut tuition. They need that revenue somewhere. And so the government needs to bring, uh, you know, funding in to support that, um, that reduction. Uh, and I'll also add that, uh, you know, faculty are working really, really hard right now to make this fall semester as good as it can be under the circumstances and to offer high high quality education and and I and I know they'll be able to do that but I do understand that the very difficult economic uh, circumstances that most students find themselves in now Ray you're going to be teaching online this fall at the University of Ottawa most of the University of Ottawa is going to be online do teachers feel comfortable with remote learning first of all I'm on parental leave so I'm not teaching this year Okay. That's I wish I were. I wish I were because I'm actually a, a big champion of online learning. And in my faculty and in my school, that's been uh, something we've resisted to a large extent. The professors in general don't feel comfortable. And it's hard to teach certain topics online, like statistics, for example, that requires you know a whiteboard to, to mark on and to, to be able to peer over people's desks to see if they're doing the math right, or laboratory courses where you have to actually do physical things like mixing chemicals. So in the sciences, we have a specific set of challenges. Not to say that the arts don't have the same or, or different challenges, everyone's different. But uh, to answer your question, professors in general do not feel well prepared for this. And we've only had a few months to prepare, and that's, a, that's not enough time for a dramatic paradigm shift with insufficient resources thrown into it. Now, uh, in, in terms of the uh, uh, teaching online, and you mentioned some stuff can be taught, some can't. For for the stuff that can be taught online, that, that you know, that's not as tactile as is some of the other things. Do you consider the quality of online to be the same as being in class? Uh, well, I'll, I assume that question is for me. Yeah, it can be. It mm-hmm. can be the same. It's just different. It's a different modality of learning, and it's not for everyone. It's actually preferable for some students, and just anathema to others, depending upon their learning style. I'm a big fan of deploying a variety of options for learning for students in addition to the um, in-person variety. So even before this pandemic, we had a big push on to create online courses. I had to record a special video um, that we produced at high expense to convince incoming students to take my online class, to convince them that it has certain quality that you cannot get in person. But the in-person has certain qualities you cannot get online. So as a standalone service, it is insufficient, but it is in addition to another set of larger educational services we should be offering. Brenda, what, what's been the approach in Manitoba to reopening uh, colleges and universities for the fall? Well, in Manitoba, 
uh, we're one of the provinces in which most of the colleges and universities uh, are online. At least my university is completely online for the first term. We have, uh, well, I should say, not quite completely, but mostly online. About 55% of colleges and universities across the country actually are virtually virtual. Right? Mm -hmm. um, we have a couple of exceptions and those have to do with the, the kinds of instructional uh, needs that Raywalk was, uh, Raywalk was uh, alluding to. We have, for example, some introductory courses in theater that are being conducted in an online situation with uh, physical distancing in place, the use of clear masks so people can see each other speak and do accent corrections when they're rehearsing for different roles, that kind of thing. And we probably also are going to see a few labs, some bench science um, go forward with some very small labs. So many more distributed, smaller groups of people mixing their chemicals uh, and perhaps some uh, nursing classes. I was talking to somebody who was uh, kind of musing over how to teach nurses how to insert a catheter online. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that do require not just dexterity, but their responsive instructional moments in which you have to interact with another person in order to adjust your style of interaction, medicine, dentistry, nursing, these kinds of things uh, to a patient or to, to somebody for whom you're, you're you know, providing a kind of physical service and it's the response of the person that guides you. So I'd say in Manitoba, most of it is virtual. And again, as people has, have observed, uh, it's the, the situation we're in right now is involuntary. And that's what makes it the most challenging. Online education has uh, an important place to play, play in the post-secondary education sector. It's the fact that in mid-March, we all pivoted instantly, whether we liked it or not, whether students liked it or not, whether their families liked it or not, whether our communities wanted to or not. So it's the involuntary nature of this that came as such a shock. It also uh, will come perhaps as a surprise to some people to learn that online education done well, high quality online instruction is actually really expensive. It takes a lot of resources. You need a lot of IT support. So there's a resource draw that again, our universities and colleges were not necessarily prepared for. So the call for lower tuition, I think is absolutely um, spot on. But uh, uh, as Gillian says, it's not a matter of just wiping out that income stream from universities and colleges. This is an opportunity for the federal government to step up and begin to take steps to actually, I think, put in place the equivalent of the Healthcare Act, but for post-secondary education. Nicole, uh, let's get back to you. A case of COVID on campus at Carleton University here in Ottawa today, uh, five at Western University in London. Are student concerns about cleaning and health being addressed clearly by colleges and universities? So return to campus has definitely been a scary topic of conversation for both students and workers. Uh, and students are concerned about the folks who are there to take care of them on their campuses as well and ensuring that both faculty uh, as well as uh, facility workers on their campuses are being protected. Um, I think it's it's been complicated because there hasn't been very steady streams of communication uh, that students have been 
experiencing from their institutions. Uh, and that's where that barrier and that fear is largely coming from as well. And the misunderstanding about how individuals should be interacting on their campus. Uh, so I think that moving forward, there really does need to be consultation uh, that's taking place between workers, uh, students, and the administration uh, to ensure that every single person on that campus is feeling safe and is being protected. Uh, and moving forward, there does need to be a more open stream of communication uh, to, uh, to make sure that everybody is able to uh, be present on campus and being engaging in the ways that they need to be. Gillian, I'm, I'm curious, colleges... Do you think they're going to get a dramatic drop of enrollment for this fall and, and probably next year as well? When you when you see, in particular with college, it's more a hands-on approach to training, to, to training in particular for trades. So I, I'm kind of wondering, are we expecting a big drop? Well, I, I don't speak for the college sector, so it's it's hard for, and I it's hard for me to say. And also. We actually don't even know what our enrollments are going to look like in the university sector um, this fall either. I mean, there's kind of early numbers that suggest that domestic enrollments are quite good. They're quite healthy. Um, international students, as Nicole alluded to earlier, um, probably not. Uh, so um, that will be interesting. I think the it's my impression, and now this is totally anecdotal because this is from me as a parent because <laughs> I have a child in the college system. Um, but it would it seems that colleges are doing an awful lot of work to um, put their you know put the programs in um, in some online and some in person and some blended so that they can do as much of that kind of hands on work um, as the, as they can. And I know uh, you know the kinds of things that Brenda was talking about um, you know so those those like labs and and those in person things that you can only do skills acquisition in person. I think the colleges are working really hard to kind of trying to find their way around so that they can have as much space on campus to do that safely. Um, but I, but I, it's going to take the entire fall for us really to understand, like probably till November to really get a sense of what the enrollment numbers are going to be like this year. Right. Yeah. Now, some schools are going to be offering up to 70% of uh, their, their classes in person and four of them are in Atlantic Canada. Now there's been a lot of focus on the Atlantic bubble. Now, is this where we see the bubble works or not? <laughs> Whoa, that's a difficult question. If anyone can do it, they can do it. Mm -hmm. right? This disease is not the same across the country. It has different characteristics and manifestations depending upon the region. Uh, it varies with population density, with a history of disease in that area, with a variety of other factors, especially right now travel. So the extent to which international travel is colonizing and seeding new cases here in central Canada is problematic. They haven't got the same issues in Atlantic Canada. So 70, I didn't realize it was as high as 70%. Um, I think if they are using the right strategies, like using fully their distancing protocols and mask wearing and avoiding those classes that require touching and intimate association, then they've got a chance. What you can't control for is the extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. You know, the, are students gathering to study in large groups afterwards? Are there pubs involved? Are there house parties? That's the kind of thing I think that will really uh, drive the epidemic in uh, the campus situation. Not so much the classes, even though classes are, quote-unquote, dangerous, relatively speaking. But uh, given Atlantic Canada's low initial prevalence, the risk is obviously much lower. But again, it's these other activities that mm -hmm. 
threaten super spreading events? You gave me a difficult question. I have no obvious answer except to say, I hope, I hope they get through it. No, that, that's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and you know, we're, I think we're going to, you know, part of the problem is, you know, Ontario's got a certain issue. Quebec's got an issue right now. Atlanta, Canada, not so much. And, and maybe that's the problem is, you know, we're trying to get a blanket way of just opening up these schools, but you can't because you've got these outbreaks here and there, yet some others are, are good. How do you stay, how do you, uh, how do you deal with that, Ray? Well, uh, a heterogeneous disease requires a heterogeneous response. Every region is going to be different. And the most important factor is what is the caseload in the community? If your caseload is extremely low, you have more options. If it's extremely high, you have almost no options. I personally would like to err on the side of overprotection. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to be in person for most classes. I don't fully understand why they're choosing to be in person. Uh, I'm sure they have their reasons. So <clears throat> I mean, your question was, uh, how do you manage the, mm-hmm. the multiplicity of manifestations across the country? You do it with a multiplicity of different strategies and importantly, a fallback position. What is their plan? if and when their strategy fails. Are they ready to pivot to fully online in a week's notice? That's unclear. Okay. If I could add on to that quickly sure. too. Um, so in relation to how students are able to engage with their education as well as even for uh, professors or course instructors who are having to work from home, a huge component is, uh, is access to Wi-Fi. Uh, and the reality is that for many students in rural communities uh, or from low-income families, that's just not simply accessible. Uh, and that's really need, uh, needs to be something that's addressed beyond tuition uh, and the, you know, all those extra fees that are now a requirement in order to even pursue your education that really need to be explored and uh, be supported uh, in accessing this. Good point. Very good point. But I jump in too sure. at this point and just say I'm I'm from originally Atlantic Canada, so I know many of these small universities that you're referring to, and uh, they are often in semi-rural areas, mm-hmm. as Nicole points out, where access is an issue. They're also in small towns that pretty well de- uh, are really dependent on the business that these students bring in. So there's a little bit of that going on too. Uh, what does uh, what does a small school uh, offer that a big school doesn't? Exactly the kind of intimacy, small class sizes. So they have a bit of an advantage. I think in Nova Scotia, there's one active case of COVID right now. After the outbreak at Northwoods, uh, long-term care home in Halifax was brought under control the caseload rapidly dropped. So I think what you're seeing is small towns, small universities, already uh, lower uh, student um, Mm. populations, right? 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, far easier to manage. And I think the administrations and probably the towns are taking a bit of a risk, but uh, they're trying to make it work. But I'd also Mm. add, these are also the small towns in which we see contract academic staff People who work, who teach at more than one university at the same time, moving from place to place to place to place. And those are the people, those are the academic staff who are exposed to to more dangers and more risk. If you are in Halifax and you're teaching at three different institutions trying to make a living because you don't earn enough money as a contract academic, then you have very little choice but to put yourself on kind of the instructional equivalent of the front line. It's like the the PSW situation here with long-term care in Ontario. It's it's analogous, yes. Yeah. Brenda, I was going to ask you as well with uh, with the return to class and the impact of COVID. What, what's been the impact on research being done by university professors? Oh, it has just been devastating uh, because of the necessity for everybody to switch immediately to 
uh, teaching themselves how to teach online. And there, there were more resources available in the summer, at least to some people, but it was very difficult to manage. And the, uh, the interim, like that, the, the end of the spring term usually offers people an opportunity to delve into research. That's where people go on site visits. If they have archaeological digs, they go to field research. Uh, if they're biologists, wildlife biologists, they go to archives in different countries. If they're historians and literary scholars, and all that was shut down. You couldn't fly, you couldn't travel, you couldn't get access, and you had to set everything aside in order to become a better teacher, a functional teacher in this online environment. And what we saw was um, academic research kind of stopped and uh, publications, at least for many, most women in the academy also stopped. A few people were able to keep the research up, but they had other advantages going for them, perhaps, uh, to start with. Uh, but research has really ground to a halt. So that traditional uh, three to four month area in which people conduct their researchers, collect their data, go into public schools, for example, and collect data on children. All of that was shut down. So we're going to see those effects into the fall. And though People might not realize that a lot of those effects have to do with the pandemic itself. That is, people conducting medical research, sociological research, psychological research into the effects of the pandemic, the effects of isolation, gerontology, right, pediatrics. All of these researchers are, are going to be affected by this. Gillian, uh, I mean, I'm going to ask you, uh, and this is not only as an associate pro professor, but you also had mentioned that uh, you have... Uh, you have a child in, in college. So I'm asking you, as, as a parent, dorm life, any concerns? <laughs> um, well, my, uh, my daughter is, is, because her program is entirely online, is mm. staying home. Okay. Um, so, and the dorms are open uh, where she's going. And I, and I, the dorms are open at Nipissing as well for students who choose to, you know, to study online at school. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think in terms of the health concerns, the, you know, for all the reasons that everybody has mentioned that, you know, the, the um, dorm life is probably the most, the riskiest um, kind of space for, for um, spreading COVID for sure. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think we're also really concerned about, about uh, young folks who are, you know, kind of ready to start their lives and then embark on this new um, kind of phase of their development, not not being able to do that, not being able to kind of, you know, go ahead and have that kind of transitional space between being, um, you know, fully on their own and, and, and being at home. And so um, what I'm finding really interesting through just observing my, my own kids is the way that they are taking some of the skills that they have um, and using them to kind of substitute for the kinds of things that they would normally be doing in dorm life. So they're using all their social media skills to make friends and get connected and set up study groups and, um, you know, do all those kinds of then create online social events and all of that kind of stuff. So they're, they're doing their best. Um, but I think there's a real risk and also a real loss that we're seeing for, for those young mm -hmm. folks, for sure. Yeah. Now, now, Nicole, uh, international students, and you had mentioned it back at the beginning of the show, you know, how much they actually pay to come here, $21 billion for the economy in 2018. 
what what dilemma are these students dealing with? Because obviously they were represented by you as well, right? Yes, um, it's it's scary and it's hard for these students. Um, they've been explicitly excluded from any type of financial uh, support that's been made available from the federal government. Uh, so in addition to paying those extremely high, ridiculous tuition fees, uh, they have had no financial support other than the fact that certain uh, students who do work in um, the essential fields were permitted to work you know, 20 hours a week uh, because that was something that uh, Canada needed, not that it was a benefit to the student in that way at all. Um, so when we're talking about, as you said, $21 billion to the Canadian economy, this isn't simply through tuition. Uh, these students contribute through housing, they contribute through taxes that they pay, uh, and every single time you know that they do work as well, they're paying taxes. So um, they do deserve the support that domestic students have been receiving, and that's simply not been there. Uh, and students are calling for this inclusion um, when they are asking for the federal government to continue to provide financial supports. Uh, but beyond that, too, you know, the students who are here still because they haven't been able to go home with COVID uh, or who are, you know, now trying to navigate studying from their home countries and, and courses that are here. Um, there's serious mental health concerns that are going to come along with that as well in terms of the isolation that's being experienced. Uh, and that's a concern across the board. Uh, but especially for these students who are here uh, in a different country trying to navigate these spaces uh, and now are being told that they're not able to engage uh, or make friends in the same ways that they could before. Um, these are very serious issues and uh, what universities and, and colleges really need to be investigating is what types of mental health supports are available, um, not only through online, but through phone networks for students who are unable to access Internet, uh, you know, those hours that the campuses are closed. Where are students going to go when they need to submit assignments or when they need to do their studying? Um, it's, there's so many tiered uh, layers of concern that exist and that really need to be addressed and considered. And I, I, I'm wondering, from your perspective with the Canadian uh, Federation of Students, are, are you getting any, any calls, any inquiries from international students, whether they can get into the country or not? I'm not sure if coming to school is necessarily considered essential by the government. Yeah, it's been confusing. Uh, that's something that we're still trying to figure out a little bit, too. Um Again, it, it depends on the institution about whether students are able to study internationally or not. Uh, not every single institution has made that allowable. Um, and it's really dependent on what's allowable by the, the, the country. And I know visas have been very backed up for students who are trying to apply, um, whether that is to go home or uh, I'm assuming that it would be the same for coming back here. So um, I'm not exactly sure on that answer, but I do know for folks that I have been able to talk to that it, it's been a serious struggle. Ray, I, I'm wondering if this provides an opportunity for post-secondary education, you know, the word we've been using since March is pivot. But, um, you know, when we're looking at so much uh, teaching that will be online, uh, virtual, whatever you want to call it, universities, colleges just might not need all that property, all that space, all that anything, right? Is there? Are you seeing, you know, looking big picture here, big sky, are you seeing some way of changing education, post-secondary education here? Not just education. Look, uh, there's no adage. Uh, the Chinese say that crisis and opportunity are the same word. I don't know if that's true. Crisis unity. I don't know. But the, the pandemic is a crisis that is presenting a variety of opportunities for rethinking how we do things. At the post-secondary, I mean, at the secondary level, for example, there's no reason that school has to start the first week of September. Why do we assume that's the case? The pandemic gives us an opportunity to rethink when we start and how we start and the hours that we offer and things like that, right? How we deploy healthcare, uh, long-term care centers. All these um, are now in jeopardy and the weaknesses are being shown. Pandemics have a way of exacerbating the inequalities in society and in prizing forth the truths of our nature, 
our frailty than our strengths. So what it's doing for post-secondary education is revealing for us our strengths. Our strengths are passion individuals, committed teachers, um, the content that we offer, all that wonderful stuff, and the weaknesses. And the weaknesses are our overexpensive infrastructure, our unused and underused infrastructure. And you're right, I think that's always been the threat with online learning before the pandemic, is that increasingly uh, universities would push it as an option to reduce costs in the long term and take away our offices, for example. I hear that all the time from my colleagues. But I think it might just happen now. I think oh, really? they're going to grow up and realize, oh, we actually don't need to offer a lot of this stuff. A lot of it can be automated. Some of that's good and some of it's bad. Right? The good is I don't want to have office hours in person anymore. I want to do it by video conference and I'll leave my house for the two students that show up. The bad is, well, they're going to be disadvantaging a lot of people as we've, as we've noticed here. So we'll see what happens. We're in a whole new era now. And nothing will ever be the same again. There we are. Brenda, what, what do you think? Big Sky uh, vision there of education. Do you see it changing permanently? Uh, not necessarily. I no. think there always will be and should be choice. And the choice needs to be driven in consultation with the content experts. And they're our members. So I'd say uh, we know from surveying members, we have a, a, a crowdsourced survey on the caut.ca website that talks about uh, the effects of COVID on the academic staff. We also have a really interesting chart of different institutions and whether or not they're moving partly online, blended learning, all in person. I think what will happen is it's going to be uneven and it should be uneven. Uh, as Raywat points out, there are inequities now. Those inequities will be even more apparent. What we need is a post-secondary education system that's publicly funded, it's not a commodity. It serves the public good. And it does that in the most flexible and compassionate way possible with the academic mission and the academics at its core. Because wherever you have academics and students, that's where the university is. Well, I want to thank all our guests on Unpublished TV this evening. Gillian Phillips is the past president of the uh, OC UFA. Ray Watt Dianandan, professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. Nicole Briannis is the national deputy chair of the Canadian Federation of Students. Brenda Austin-Smith, president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers as well, professor at the University of Manitoba. And I Coming up on our next Unpublished TV, we'll take a look at when and if the Canada-U.S. border should reopen for non-essential travel. Thanks a lot for watching Unpublished TV. You know what they think. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.